This guy made 700 grand last year renting out other people's properties. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, a proud member of the Entrepreneur Podcast Network. If you're looking for ways to make extra money and build a business in limited hours, you are in the right place. Pretty crazy case study for you today. We're talking about a market where a lot of cash is already flowing, Airbnb in this case, and how to get some of that cash flowing to you without having to have strangers in your spare bedroom or investing in real estate yourself. It's called rental arbitrage, basically locking in long-term leases and then turning them into short-term rentals with the landlord's permission, of course, and then profiting on that spread. My guest has gone big into this space in the last three years, scaling to 60 units, over $2.5 million in revenue last year, which shook out to that 700 grand in profit from iStayUSA.com. Richie Matthews, welcome to the Side Hustle Show. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So stick around in this one to learn how to find cash flowing markets, how to get landlords to agree to this. That's probably the first step. And then how to build in some smart automations to make it a pretty hands-off business once it's all up and running. But I want to start with this landlord piece, because if these are not properties that you own, obviously you got to find this long-term lease that's being advertised or this long-term rental that's being advertised and then come in kind of cold. Landlord doesn't know you from the next guy to say, yeah, we're open to this company renting our place and guaranteeing us the rent. I guess that's the benefit. Like I don't have to deal with tenants or something, but then lots and lots of rejection on this front in the first months. And then finally getting to yes. You remember your first yes that you got? Somebody was like, yeah, that's fine. Let's do this. Yeah, I do. I do. For the first one, yeah. So backstory, my wife and I were event producers for a long time, 15 years, 10 years for our last company. It's We're in Southern California. It's very seasonal income. The, our events are in the summer and spring. And so in the wintertime, we wanted to offset some of that seasonality, that low income. We were looking for a side hustle. And I came across this rental arbitrage business sector. was very skeptical about it. The closer I looked at it, the more it seemed like it made some sense, at least for us, because there's a low cash, kind of a low barrier to entry in a way. I thought so at the time. Well, compared to starting a traditional rental business where I got to come up with a 20% down payment. like Yeah. And it's a different business model. I'm an investor. And I think that's a great business model. You get all the benefits of ownership, right? You've equity and amortization and debt pay down. But with arbitrage, you're just looking for cash flow. And one could argue potentially you're building a brand. I believe we are, but it's cash flow and cash on cash return, right? You just want to make sure the money that you're putting in there, you're able to get back, use that capital to move on. We didn't have a ton of money to just throw in an industry that we did where it was untested in an uncertain time. So we wanted to do one to see how it would cash flow and then determine what we would do after that. So in December of 2019, when we decided to give it a go, I tested it. It took a little bit, month. In January, we wound up getting a deal. And we set it up in February of 2020, but I got a deal from a building that had some vacancy issues in a nice part of town. It didn't have a ton of amenities. It was a nice one-bedroom apartment. It was very nice. And you're in San Diego? Yep. It was in downtown San Diego where we got our first, set it up, had no idea the day they said yes and signed a lease what we were going to do. They agreed to our sublease model. They agreed to allow us to list it on platforms like Airbnb. Okay, because it was sitting vacant, they're like, well, we yeah. get some cash coming in. This guy says he's going to guarantee us. Like, what was the outreach pitch? They actually had another company in that building doing like what we had done. They weren't really happy about them. They were okay with the business model and they had five apartments that were vacant. All of them were fantastic. They decided to give me approach. The pitch was, hey, look, I'm looking to, and I told them flat out from the beginning, I just I have had no experience. I pointed back to our experience in this other business that we had. They knew of the events. I started talking to the different people in the company. The leasing agent herself was really my biggest advocate at that particular building. She came to me. She said, they're willing to do it. Here are our conditions. We wrote a corporate lease contract, very different than a residential lease contract. And we got our first. The deal was, hey, we'll try out one in a few months if it works out. We'll do more. So I was fine with that. Well, immediately after signing, within days, I was walking through the lobby, you know, setting up the property. I did it all myself. Yeah. You don't have to come up with a big down payment, but you do have to like furnish the place and stock it with dishes and all the amenities that somebody would want as a rental. And I budgeted it out and everything like that. I kind of had an idea of what I was expecting to get in return and when I was going to get it and what I needed to spend to get in. The really big benefit was that I was able to, as little as that I knew about this whole model then... I did negotiate four weeks free rent up front. And so I was able to get in a very low deposit that they were already offering. 
And they were amendable to it, I believe, because they're high vacancy and they liked the business model, but they just didn't like the current operator that was in there who they were getting rid of. So I was just basically a replacement. It was a bit of happenstance. And luck. I had had so many no's. I had had people say yes to me before that. Then they declined us at the application because they said, well, you haven't done this before. So no way. This company gave us a shot. We set it up, listed it got booked right away. I actually moved into it for a few days and furnished it myself. I actually cleaned it the first two turnovers, kind of to figure out what the time allocation would come. Hired our first housekeeper. She's still with us. She's a supervisor at Blanca and it went off to the races. I did a lot wrong and I was communicating with guests. I didn't have software. I didn't have a VA or a system of any kind. I'm not from- You got to do it yourself first before you outsource well, it. Well, yeah. That makes total sense. I believe that too. How much did it cost you to get it furnished? This is all like Ikea stuff or what? 40 <laughs> $300. It was about $5 a square foot, five to $6 a square foot, which you can get away with then. I had very little design sense. It wasn't basically, it was an Ikea explosion in there. <laughs> the name of the game for me was just get it listed, it, but it did book. And that was sort of how it went back then. I mean, I say back then, it's only a few years ago, but you can't, now you have to be more intentional. You have to have, the bar has been raised with the hosting standard now, and you can't host like that anymore. So I was a little bit of luck in the beginning in that it booked right away. I was paid back on the sixth week. So within mid-March, I was basically paid back my spend. So I went to the building. They had previously offered me a unit, which I was waiting to take. And with the capital that we had made, we, we picked up our second, which is literally next door. It was the unit right next door. I did that same thing. It booked right away. A week later, COVID came and all of our events were canceled. We were 10 days out from our biggest festival of the year, big food festival that we produced. My wife and I in Los Angeles, it was the eighth annual event, wiped out. So we made a very decision. I don't even know what you want to call it, a crazy decision to proceed. We took two more units. This time, one of them was a penthouse and it was very nice. And then the other one was another one better. And we took them both and then now we had four use that cash at the building had worked a deal out with us in two other cities that they had other properties that were also suffering. Keep in mind, it was COVID. So in the state of California, there was talk about a eviction moratorium, which later came to be the rule. I believe this is why they wanted to work with us. A, we were doing a good job with hosting, paid our rent on time. We were good hosts, but they were also diversifying their tenant risk portfolio is a thing. So we're a company. And so the laws don't apply like they would if you live there. For them, it was lower risk. And if you're a landlord, think about that for a minute. With a moratorium like that, it could be catastrophic if you have someone in there that's not doing what they should be doing. So we scaled quickly within, by August, we had nine units in three different buildings, four in the first and then in those other two buildings in three different cities. So with different rules and, and all that applied, all of them were working. We were starting to get teachers from... Arizona that wanted to do Zoom because it was COVID. We had nurses and we were, believe it or not, even at 45, 50% occupancy, if you keep your costs low, you can do well. And that's the thing. Then the rents were dropping, vacancies were high. Even though travel was lighter than it had been, there was new types of travel like nurses and things. So we fared well during that and actually scaled to 18 apartments in that 12-month period. Yeah, this reminds me of the Warren Buffett thing about being fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. It's like, I don't know if I would want to get into a travel-related business in spring of 2020, but hey, you know, certain types of travel were still happening. These buildings were looking to, as you said, diversify their tenant risk portfolio. I never would have considered that, but hey, here it was. The opportunity was in front of us, so we decided to go big in a hurry. Because what else do we have? Our other events business was shut down. So I was like, well, let's see if we can make this work. So first unit, 4300 bucks to furnish. What was like the monthly lease on that? I'm going to say about 2250 I think, at the time. Now, this is a building that didn't have a pool or gym or hot tub in a market that had all of that. But here's the other thing. So the properties that we have aren't properties I personally probably would want to stay in. A lot of the best properties, and I've made the mistake of shopping for properties like that, that were nice. They were new build that had really slick amenities. Amenities matter, but new build doesn't. Location is everything. The name of the game is to come in as inexpensively as you can. Negotiate rent concessions if you can. So we acquire during low season, which is we're approaching now, or low economy, which again, we're happening just like we had then. Last year was a tough one. Last year, I didn't scale. And I just let the numbers speak for themselves. We look for at least two to one ratio, right? Paying 2,500, we want an, on average the property to gross 5,000. Not rocket science. Before my time, I heard it was more like three and four X. 
And these are for apartments. I have one house. We only focus on two-bedroom apartments. Then it was one. It's more two is a sweet spot, but apartments- Two-bedroom is a sweet spot to look for. Yeah. And grade B, grade B minus, I got in the trap of getting some nicer properties and I'm like, hey, we'll take the kids over to the theme park and we'll stay there. These are cash flowing properties. They're not assets. It's really just to make money on them and to do the best we can as we hire a ton of people too. How are you estimating that rental income side of it? Okay. If I'm going to rent it for $2,250 or if I'm going to rent it for $2,500 on this long-term lease, how am I estimating that it's going to bring in five grand? Even if I can look at the nightly rates on competing properties on Airbnb, it's like, okay, 500, whatever it is, but that doesn't take into account the expected occupancy. Right. At the time, a few years ago, I was a cheapskate. I used a lot of free tools, Mashivisor and the free version of AirDNA. But now I pay for AirDNA. It gives projections and lagging data. Lagging data is okay, but everything's been different every quarter and every year than the previous quarter and year. So you don't want to depend only on lagging information. I look at comps. So I'll look after I know a market will cash flow based on my two to one ratio. AirDNA will say, okay, it'll last three years. A two-bedroom apartment in this zip code, mid-upscale apartment, you can put on all the criteria and you can get very accurate on what a property made. But going forward, you're like, well, how can I assure myself that's what's going to continue? So I look at comps. I just look at actual two-bedroom, two-bath comps with apartments and condos in that market. I mean, actual comps with everything. And then I- On Airbnb. On AirDNA. I do use Airbnb to see the quality. I look at their calendar. I look at their photos. I mean, there's a lot to be told. Like if you have five two-bedroom apartments or condos out of 10 and they're crushing it, they're beating the market average and the apartments are like so-so. They're using iPhone photos. You can tell they're not using dynamic pricing. They probably have one property. You can tell they have vertical blinds and they're doing well. There's a good indication that the market can bear more and that you could beat them. So that's sort of my last step in determining I'm going to pull the trigger on a market and then just go at it and just find a property there. But usually before that, there's some other steps I do. So I require that there's strong business travel in a market. I require that there's strong midterm rental travel, military bases, at least two tier one, tier two hospitals within five minutes, a lot of that. So I require that as well as year-round vacation travel. And so I require those three things in a market. The numbers in AirDNA are baked into the cake. I used to go down Google, go to the Chamber of Commerce or Dun & Bradstreet. Now I just use ChatGPT. So I give it some commands to find out the quantity, find out there's business headquarters or multiple business headquarters and determining the vibrancy of that. And if I have three or four different markets that are all about the same, the ones that have more dynamic market that way, especially in business travel, Midterm rental travel is pretty popular in a lot of places, but business travel, as long as the business travel is strong, because if the recession takes it on the chin next year or even in the next few months, vacation travelers, at least my vacation travelers, will maybe pull back. I really want to see strong business travel as well as midterm rental travel, which I have depended upon since 2020. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills, and then we'll be right back to the show. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A. ANDS.com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, so this is where a market like Tahoe would be almost all dependent on your vacation travel or remote work, digital nomadism. Like you can see a medium term rental market out there, but not a lot of hospitals, not a lot of business travel versus if I wanted to try and set this up in Seattle, I could find that one to two bedroom apartment near the downtown core, lots of business travel, maybe somewhat seasonal on the, the tourist market. Lots of people coming in on cruise ships and stuff during the summer, but you know, a nice place to visit in the summer, at least. Lots of hospitals in near that downtown area. So it may check a few of those boxes. And then I'm going to say, I'm just looking on long-term rental listings and I'm trying to find, I guess, you know, that, you know, high mid tier, like you said, this kind of grade B, you know, it's not top of the line place, but a nice, nice-ish rental and location matters more than anything else. And then I'm looking on AirDNA to say, well, what is a two bedroom place likely to make here? Like it will give you that type of data if you kind of zoom in on an area. Yeah, you can. And, you know, no, our model is dependent on occupancy trumps the average daily rate. We're more like a motel or a hotel, more like an airline. So our pricing and our revenue management and our business model is really more like that than how most people think of a vacation rental. We're really not a vacation rental. I'm not actually looking at that for that data first, but you're right. Funny, I saw it was on AirDNA. They said the, the top uh, 10 Airbnb markets in the United States. It was like Jackson Hole and Anchorage and all these places. I said, those are the worst place. I would never operate our business model there because of, you know, that's what it is. And I think that's the misnomer. People think when they think in Airbnb markets, sure. Vacation markets, yeah, that's that. But ours is, it's way more than that. I mean, we're, we're now getting nearly um, 40% of our business is now not on Airbnb. Um, 20, half of that is direct. And I would love, and our numbers should be way higher than that. And so wow. the, the obje- that's the obje- certainly surprising. So you've diversified. I mean, are you talking VRBO bookings? Are you talking like, no, people are coming direct to us. So because, some of those, Verbo you know, was our second. And then uh, I, we got on Expedia. We got off of booking.com. I was on them and it, was, it wasn't a good experience. We tried it twice. Then we were on the midterm rental platforms, upscale platforms like um, the landings, uh, uh, traveling medical professionals like Furnished Finder. But what we do is we, over time, have collected a lot of um, uh, recruiters for nurses and other people, and we put them into a drip campaign, and we send them a link to our page, and we just get direct bookings that way. It went from 10 earlier this year at 15, and now it's it's half of our overall um, non-Airbnb bookings. I like Airbnb. I'm not one of these people who have a big problem with them. You know, They charge us 3%. I just think it's wise in any business to diversify where your business is coming from. And, and here's another big one, Nick. Name an industry that, that you or a business sector that doesn't have to market. And up until like not too long ago, that's been this business. You just set it on an, a platform and then you do your thing and they, they do all the work for you. Um, yeah. Now you've got to set it. You got to follow some best practices. You got to take great photos, you know, furnish it nicely. But it's more of the sure. work is done up front in finding that location, negotiating those terms and kind of doing that upfront research and homework. And then, yeah, setting it on there. And like, I mean, that was your experience. I got bookings right away. I broke even on my investment in six weeks. And it's like, wow, compared to a you know a 20% down payment on a traditional rental, it might be years before you recoup that in cash flow. Yeah. It's it's harder now. I mean, it's definitely there's more competition. The the market there's a lot of things going on. But I think with some intentionality, there are ways. Like for instance, if you see a market that says, "All right, you're going to do 65 percent occupancy," and you, it's just not enough for you, there are some things you could raise that number to 80 with just a little bit of outbound, a little bit of B two B 
marketing. You can just send an email to nursing recruiters or to hospitals or to build. There's a, you know, the Navy. We work with the Navy now in getting people to stay with us near the military bases. Um, insurance relocation companies is fantastic. Um, they pay above market. People have a flood or a fire, they need a place to stay, and the insurance company books it. The insurance company is the actual tenant. So it doesn't matter what the tenant does, whether they overstay or don't pay. The insurance company does all that, which is fantastic. It's one of the benefits we have as a short-term rental um, company is that we're not, uh, you know, we don't worry about residency laws and so forth. And so if you're, if you got a, a midterm rental guest in there, there's some risk, right? And so, if you're working with an insurance company or the landings, which is also a really great platform, then th- that really diversifies. Out of that experience, we've got a lot of um, contacts, and then we just put them into a really modest one-month drip email campaign to be at top of their inbox. And we get bookings all the time, nice midterm rental bookings, which we depend on during low season. High season, we want the shortest possible guests because that's max profit. Um, and in low season, we want people to stay for you know at least a month. And, and that helps. Okay, okay. Yeah, and it's fewer turnovers. It's just easier. Like I'm going to take a lower nightly rate in exchange for not in, in exchange for having it full the whole time, and then not yeah. having to deal with all the logistics of turnover and stuff. Yeah, but my point is, is that if 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 and it doesn't take a ton of time. I think even if you have one property, if, if you just spend a little bit of time figuring out who you can you can invite, get on the phone. Um, you know, one of the things I, I learned, I didn't create this. I found out was that you can call the the. HR department of a hospital, find out who their recruiter is for traveling nurses. There's a shortage of nurses in this country. And so the nurses, so the HR departments are looking for certain types of nurses. And then you reach out to them, say who the recruiter is. And you can find some like one-off consultant types that aren't, you can't Google, <clears throat> reach out to them, say, Hey, look, I've got X amount of properties within five minutes of this hospital. I'd love to be your housing. You can make that call or email. And you can, if you do that enough, regularly put that as part of your daily routine or weekly routine, you can increase your occupancy um, quite a bit. And so that's all we've done over time. That we, we uh, It keeps us more competitive. I think that's really interesting. Trying to just swim up the food chain of who might be staying here, you know, instead of relying hundred percent on, you know, travel and tourism market, it's like, well, there's other, there's other types of tenants here who, who would be looking for a short term or midterm stays. The easiest way of doing that is to find contractors, general contractors, construction companies, and others. You can actually see them congregate uh, at like days in or extended say. You can see their trucks and you can see their names and you just take their names and say, hey, look, I have a property across the street from you guys. You guys are staying at the days in. Give me a break. We have a much nicer property. Here's our photos. You can get them to get business to you. And they stay six months, seven months, eight months at a time. Um, and again, they're not the, the person staying in your property isn't the tenant. It's the company because you make the contract with it. And it's, it's the best of both worlds. You get the best of midterm without all the risks of residency and, and you have it set it and forget it. And it's an opportunity for you to scale then because then you, your, your, your resources aren't, you know, focused on turnover. Now you can look at uh, or growing your company. That's exactly how we've did it. Is there a target occupancy that you're looking for? Like, well, if it's rented out 20 days a month, we're, we're going to make some money or like, you know, where, what do you think about it in terms of, you know, break even and profitability? We use a, 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 a dynamic um, <clears throat> pricing software called price labs. And so they match the best occupancy with the average daily rate with a lot of other factors. And it's a great tool. It's expensive, but it winds up making money. And so in the beginning, I was all about occupancy, but I realized our price was too low. In the end, I was losing money. I was leaving money on the table and uh, probably not getting the best guests. But I still am a proponent of higher occupancy for a lot of reasons. One, the more clicks you get, the more bookings you get, the higher in the page you'll be. And so I actually believe occupancy trumps your average daily rate. And for that, we're shooting for the high 70s. This year is a little bit different. Softer travel this year, and overall, we're in the mid-70s, which is good, which is very good still. But that's a combination of our outbound, our midterm rental stuff, multi-platform and we have our own direct booking website for that reason we most likely would have been a lot lower the markets we operate in general in the high 60s now yeah it's interesting since so much of the cost is fixed in terms of the lease and then you know just variable costs like if somebody books they're going to pay the cleaning fee in a lot of ways so it's like it's kind of like how priceline was back in the day where it's like this hotel room was going to go vacant this night anyway so like right you pay 50 bucks for it it's enough for us to pay our team make a little bit of money like yeah, it's kind of like this dynamic pricing and you got to have software, especially if you're managing dozens and dozens of different 
places over time. Like, like I, there's no way I could keep track of all this. Or there's, you know, a concert in town. Like there's some a big event or some conference or something is happening and now demand is higher. So we're going to manually adjust that. No, you're not going to do that. So you got to have the different tools to do that. Now, one thing that I've heard, because we did a, a YouTube video on rental arbitrage probably three-ish years ago, maybe three and a half years ago. And he described his outreach as, you know, hey, I represent such and such properties, LLC. We're a leasing company or we're a corporate housing company. Like they kind of like try, even though obviously until you get that first yes, you don't really have a ton of credibility, but you kind of almost have to fake it until you make it. You kind of have to say like, we know what we're doing or I don't know. Like, how do you approach that? What I did was, and I just said, hey, look, we're XYZ corporate leasing company, or you can say a furnished housing provider, which is a bit more accurate, right? Sure, sure, sure. And you're going to them. But just like any business, it's just a lead generation thing. It's quantity of output. I say to everybody, look, we're not in the convincing business. I'm not there to cajole a business, a building to allow us to do our business model there if they're otherwise opposed to it. First, you lose all your negotiating leverage once you get to that stage. What we're just trying to do is find a building that is open to the idea, may have done it before, whether they had a good or bad experience. Usually it's the latter. Usually we're contacting, oh yeah, we know all about that. Nope, 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 we're not going to do that. (laughs) Hard hard pass. (laughs) By the way, that's what happened with the very first building. They had a bad experience, or I think they were currently had a bad experience and they were willing to allow us to do it. I would even say, and it sounds terrible, but the fact that our business got wiped out, a business that I traded my time for money for 10 years, that if I didn't work that day, nothing happened. It was 9% margins. (laughs) And now we're getting 34% margins that I've scaled and I'm not in the operations anymore. I mean, and I love that business. I still do. It was strange, the circumstances that happened that brought me here. To your point about Warren Buffett, it sounds like I was being bold and going to, I was scared too, but I just had no choice. My family, we were like, okay, should I do this or do that? And we looked at our resources were, and we looked at how dire things were happening really quickly, if you remember that back then in March even a little bit before. So we just said, look at what happened with the cash flow. We didn't go out and get 20 units at the same time. We got one at a time, sometimes two. In fact, that was our average, 1.5 units per month the first year, 18. In fact, to this day, it's about that. So I'm not advocating that someone dives in this and spends a ton of money. Yeah, and that way you can kind of self-fund the furnishing and like the upfront lease expense that you kind of like, you're not taking a ton of money off the table early on, but you are kind of growing it to a point. Yeah. And what's your risk, right? So if at the time I was negotiating early termination clauses, which if you really look at a lot of leases, they have those by default in states like California, where tenant laws are the way they are, 90 days and things. So what are you out? The furniture, which you get to write off 100% depreciated, which is incredible to find that out. So you have your furniture. Worst case scenario, obviously the lease, the duration of lease. Well, there's ways you can negotiate that too. I, you know, we're just one unit, two units at a time type of business. Did you typically go 12 months or were you looking at longer leases? I tried to get longer. I always, in the beginning, the way that the leasing offices smartly structure those, they'll look at the time of the year you're leasing and they want to end the lease during high season or when it's easier for them to move that apartment, typically summer or spring in Southern California. Before then, they'll make it either like 10 months or 15. So I would always take the latest. And now we're on on autopilot. We get auto renewals all the time unless they don't want you there anymore. And there are ways that a lot of operators like what we do, they don't want them in there. They're not monitoring their guests and not screening their guests. There's too many issues or they don't pay on time or they're just trouble. And so we make sure that's not the case and we get auto renewals every time. The only time that we have never renewed was when we were switching out. We're currently switching out of studios. And we are looking toward buildings with amenities. They don't have to be super slick, but we want a gym for our midterm rental guests. So we want security gates and stuff like subterranean parking. So we are switching our properties, but the buildings always are renewing. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll leverage the relationship with them laterally. We'll find out where else they own and say, hey, will you make an introduction? And you check out that property, you run it through your analysis I have a profit calculator that I created. It's a spreadsheet, but I created it over time. If anybody wants it, you can have it. I'll just reach out to me. I'll give you mine. So I run comps through it, occupancy, furnishing costs, and then I give a pessimistic, realistic, and a optimistic expectation. I'm always realistic, and I'll run it through my numbers, and if it looks good, then I'll contact the current building and ask them to make an introduction to the new building, and it's either a yes or no. Do you have a sense of how many no's you got initially from landlords or property management companies before you got a yes? 
we got too many no's to count. I mean, most of the inboxes are just flat no. Once you get to that point now. Yeah, or no reply, yeah. Well, now the no's that I remember are the no's where they said yes to our business model, filled out the application, and then they declined us. And in the beginning, it was just because they were like, wait, the financials you gave us are for this event company. And <laughs> mm. what you have over here is, I'm, and I said, yeah, well, that's our track record. And and so then the buildings that had said no, by the way, the first two that said yes, that said no, the three of them said no, two of them, we wound up getting deals because they say, hey, come back when you do have experience. And we came okay. back okay. in June when things were really tough. We went back to them and we wound up getting bigger deals after August. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is just, if you swing and miss on your first ask, don't consider this, oh, well, it's just not going to work in my market. It's just not going to work in this area. Like it's going to take a lot of initial outreach to kind of get your initial foot in the door. And then interestingly, it becomes easier because like, well, we have this other building or the reputation starts to grow if you do it right. And I think that's true in a lot of businesses, but it sounds like especially true in this one. Hey, just wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors for helping make this content free for everyone. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. And I want to switch gears and talk about the logistics side of things, because like you said, I'm doing the first turnover cleanings myself. I'm doing all the manual bookings myself. Like eventually turnover of different units may demand you being the same place at the same time. Like talk about building the team of cleaners and I don't know who else is involved with this, but yeah, we'll start there. Our margins are inherently thinner than our counterparts who own their properties. Mortgages are typically less than rent. So for that reason, it's important to get to economies of scale quickly within the same market, even in the same building. I never outsource any of it. We never hired a service. Sorry, property managers, but charging 30%, which is basically all of my profit last year, was undoable. So we built our team We hired our operations manager, became our property management team. We hired our housekeepers and trained them. Oftentimes, we wouldn't hire people that were previous housekeepers because short-term rental housekeeping is entirely different job than a traditional housekeeper. We hired and trained our own. A lot of them came from retail, from Home Depot. We would hire and train them. We did it by the hour instead of by the job. We hire all of our VAs and such overseas. Our virtual assistants are our front desk. They run the company. 80% of this business is done virtually. Most of it's done in Manila. (laughs) They're running the day-to-day operations and only until there's an issue that needs to be escalated does it become local. We all do that through an online group chat or they do that. Yes, it's a collaborative thing. So we have an operations manager, he has two assistants, and we have VAs who run, who communicate with the housekeepers, turnovers. We have about 200 pounds of laundry a day. Our average stay is 3.4 days times 62 properties. You can imagine it's a beast of a job. There's always issues. Every day there's issues so that we have protocols and systems that we didn't find anywhere. We created them all ourselves. Well, I didn't. Eric, to his credit, and our operations team created our systems and protocols for getting money back from a guest to a whole bunch of stuff. So we created all of that, which took time. It took a couple of years, but that's why our margins have been increasing proportionally because in the beginning, we were making so many mistakes. So if I call this 760 number on the website, does it ring an assistant in the Philippines? No, that's here. Okay. <laughs> so when I say front desk, I mean, someone makes an inquiry on any of the platforms, including our website, it goes through our messaging system to Hospitable is the software we now use. Great software. It's a channel manager. It goes to them and they'll reply to the inquiry. If it's a guest that says, hey, I need new towels. Can I get an extra day? Can I have my friends come over? Then they'll message them. And the VAs also do calendar management and turnovers. 
the turnover is just such a big job. I mean, it's such a massive thing. It's so neat that the housekeepers in our markets and the VAs in the Philippines created their own shorthand. They did it themselves just to kind of get to the point quicker. CO is checkout and ECI is early check-in and I have this, their whole language in the thing, which is fantastic. We now have 900 canned messages. So Hospitable allows us to put in a search and says, somebody says, hey, I have a question about a pet. You don't even have to think about it. We have a canned message that will go to them with their first name on it through Hospitable. So the system can be run by a couple people. You don't really need that many, but we do it just because we wanted to enhance the guest experience. And so we get back to guests within four minutes and it just allows our team to work a lot better. Yeah, that's so much more efficient than you not seeing that message for several hours if you're out doing something and everybody gets a better experience that way. Another thing is in business in general, response time is so important. It doesn't just apply to us. Think about response time. If your competitor is getting back to their inquiries faster than you are, they'll win business. Well, and if you have an issue with your stay, like yeah. it was a stay in San Diego, actually. It was like, dude, is there a heater in this place? I am freezing. And thankfully, they responded right away and sent over a little space heater. But it was like I was resorting to opening the oven and then I was like freaking myself out about carbon monoxide or something. So then I opened the window, which counteracted the oven. It was like, we'll get you a heater. Thank you, sir. Yeah, right. So you would be surprised how many people, not guests, but inquiries will come in at 3.40 in the morning. And if you're asleep and you're like, I'll get to them at eight, which is how I did it the first year. Then when you got back to them at eight, someone else may have already won the business. But if it is your guest, you have a responsibility because if it's a heater, that's a major amenity. They can actually get a refund. If it's internet, same thing. So you have a responsibility of having a protocol at night and you have to depend on your team to do that. So that's just systems and operations like all businesses or most businesses that you can build a model on top of. It's just that. And until I discovered that a business, you actually can other people, you can hire people that are better than you at it and move away from being in the center. It was me, housekeeper and guests. And then I just removed myself and my operations team moved in the middle. I was like, this is illuminating. I never knew that there was such a thing. Systems and operations for me was one of the best things that I ever discovered. It seems like a challenging business to try and find housekeepers and cleaners for because it's like, well, it's all got to happen between 11 and three. And if they need to be in two places at once, or if they come in and discover that, oh, this is a bigger mess than we normally get, it's like, this is going to take some extra time. Have you ever run into that where it's like, oh, we're not going to be able to check you in because we weren't able to get a crew out there? And I don't know. It's like there's a lot of people related moving chess pieces on this board. Yeah. During Sundays, Sundays and Mondays, right? When that's our D-Day. Occasionally, if I want to punish myself, I'll look in our WhatsApp group chat on Sunday mornings to see... It looks like mayhem and there's issues, but these guys have gotten it down. But I've seen some doozies. I've seen some mistakes, big ones. I've made a bunch. Guess was checking in and the unit wasn't ready for them. So it has happened, but you learn from that, right? Hopefully you create a system so that won't happen again. We don't overschedule housekeepers. We make sure that they are able to finish their job. When they come in, they make an assessment. And if it looks like it's going to need more help, then we send another housekeeper over there And we have all of that. We keep enough supplies on, usually on each building, we negotiate to get a storage unit. So we have a central storage in the area, but then each building usually has it. And plus each unit has a little lock away thing. So we have that. And each housekeeper, by the way, isn't really a housekeeper. I mean, per se, they're clean, but they're going in there doing inventory. They're taking photos. They're writing a report at the end of their shift and they stay put when they're done. And the photos go off to the team and they comb through the photos and they're like, okay, everything looks good. Move to the next. So we create our own little system, but it's life. Stuff happens. There's always a unique situation. Yeah. Any horror stories or squatter? Like I saw a headline the other day about somebody like, you know, rented the luxury Airbnb for three nights. And then a year and a half later, they have not left and they're like claiming squatters rights. Like imagine just anything and everything can happen with the number of units that you have. Yeah. Yeah. We've had, so the squatting thing, I think it's like the plane crash thing. You hear about them and it makes you think about that and it doesn't happen very often. I think I know the situation you're talking about in Beverly Hills or LA or something like that. I'm not going to, that wouldn't have happened to me. I'll put it to you that way. They were, I believe they were hosting in a property that wasn't properly licensed or they had the city thing. So the city said, you're on your own. Yes, we've had other people. There were people intending on coming to do bad things, whether it's overstay or stay. We actually had one recently. We handled it in the day. She actually came back. She had the nerve to come back. 
an attempt to break in. Actually, she did break in and go in there. But again, a building that we're most likely going to phase out of because of security. But there are safeguards that you can create. Once you hit, in our markets, two weeks where resident takes place, most markets, 30 days, you can restrict the days in which somebody can stay with you, and we do, to a couple of weeks. And at that point, then you have to scrutinize them and create a contract and all kinds of rules and stuff around that. Up until then, we're innkeepers. So you can physically, you do not call the sheriff, do not call the police, someone overstays, you can go in and change the locks and physically remove them. You can't do that. It's, it's against the law. It's criminal if you do that to a resident. You can't turn off someone's power on that. When it comes to short-term rental, the way we've operated, we just have a protocol. After a certain time, they're trespassers. And we have a whole system of things. It's just innkeeper's laws. And our operations manager has the short-term rental license in our market. So if the police ever involved, they shows them, look, there's their booking. They've been staying three days. They have no rights in that regard. And we have someone else checking in that has more rights than them. So we've come close a couple times. I mean, if you think about the 10,000 guests that we've hosted over the last three and a half years, you would think that would be a much higher number. It was one that I was worried about in the beginning too. It just hasn't come in, but we've taken certain safeguards. There were some people that we were if we weren't proactive, would have taken advantage. I'm thinking of this recent one about two months ago where the person actually, she overstayed and then came back and all that stuff. But that's just one in such a high number of all that. And we don't like to take that out on guests. We don't take one situation out on guests. We do have though certain criteria that we screen guests. We have a three-step screening process, which I think all hosts should have. Will you screen them on the platform in which they book? Just certain basic questions. You can even put whether or not they have a review and other things. And then we call them. In the beginning, we called all guests. Now we only call certain guests. There are certain red flags, last-minute, one-night bookings, and they live locally, for instance, and others. Oh, okay, okay. And then we have one where we're screening them on the site. So we have security and 24-7 coverage. We have a decibel detector in all of our units. It's not audio. Actually, Airbnb recommends them. They just detects audio, just decibels, make sure that there's not loud music and things like that. And so if something happens, we have a protocol that our VAs call them and say, hey, I notice it's 11 at night and you have music really loud. Please turn it down. And we have house rules that will penalize them. Have you ever got the one like... Dude, how do you know that? Like, why are you spying on me? <laughs> yeah, and that's why it's a double-edged sword. Security devices are creepy. I wouldn't want like a camera in one, but a decibel detector, once people know what it is, they realize it detects glass breaking. It's there for their safety and things like that. But yeah, it happens. We have people pull it down. They pulled it off. It's a magnetized thing. It's, we use a device called Minute, M-I-N-U-T. It's European. It's about $100 and you have a little app and it says how loud things can be. We've had people pull it down and get crazy. And it's like, well, you signed on it. There's three places that we included in all of our things. It's right in our listing. It's in the house rules. It's so many places that if you read any part of it, you'll know that that's what it's there. And I highly recommend it. There's no downside to minute. Some people might not like it, but that's because they really didn't look into what it is. It's not going to record you or see you or anything like that. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. make sure you're not too loud. Okay. So... That's helpful to know. Yes, issues can and will happen, but they're infrequent and, and can become more infrequent with certain screening processes in place, certain tools in place. So any business that is dealing with the general population, general people, public, you're going to run into this type of thing. But there are things you can put in place to protect yourself and protect your assets that you have, like your furniture and stuff that you have in there. And your neighbors. Is there an innkeeper's insurance or anything like that? There's proper insurance is a very pricey insurance, but it's one of the few that not just allows sort of Airbnb insurance, but allows the subleasing insurance, who we are. So a renter's insurance is typically what most leases require as part of to fulfill their contract. But if you go out and get renter's insurance, you're not the renter, you're the company and they'll drop you and you're not going to be covered. So it might satisfy the lease contract, but it's not really covering you. Most of the people get those, Lemonade and some of these other Toggle, those are really inexpensive programs. But Proper actually has sublease insurance. So it says, okay, you don't own the property. You're leasing it to rent it out on platforms like Airbnb. And so for that reason, it's a little bit pricier, but they have all kinds of really neat benefits in those insurance. So it's a little bit pricier. You have to factor about $90 a month into your budget. Is it per unit? Yeah. I mean, for us, so we're apartments. So if it's a house, it's going to be way yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems less intimidating to do these apartments because you don't have to deal with roofs and yard maintenance <laughs> and other... 
It's just a lot more upkeep. Hopefully. So. <laughs> Apartments are turnkey. Most rental homes aren't turnkey. I always said, I stayed at a Airbnb in Palm Springs with winter break last year with my kids. And I looked at the house. I said, look at this backyard. Look at the garage. It had a game room and a bar. I said, if you were to arbitrage this, you this would have to spend all this money in someone else's asset, which was, by the way, one of the initial objections I had about this model. I said, why would I buy all these furniture for someone else's property? Well, with an apartment, it makes sense. It's turnkey. It's literally just a furniture, which again, you can depreciate in a year and so forth. With a house, there is a big spend. So I never understood the rental arbitrage house model. Now, I don't understand it. There's people out there probably crush it because the margins are much higher. But for a lot of reasons, I stated earlier about seasonality and relying on one sector and all that. I'm just not focused on that market. Who knows? Maybe in the future, when the economy comes spinning back, I will. But right now, it is the turnkey apartments. They're nice. But again, it's not like a brand new building where I'm paying all their expenses for them. I'm looking for something that's been on the maybe 10 or 15 years old or a little bit older, but right in the middle of the action. They are right near the biggest attraction in that area, university or the restaurant row or the beach or whatever. I'm looking for that apartment right there that may have a pool or gym now. That's what I'm looking for or a hot tub, but it's just not a brand new building. So that's the thing. And they're turnkey. So I can come in hopefully without a carpet and we'll just come in and furnish it for now. Our costs are eight to nine dollars a square foot. A little bit more because of inflation and also because we're making them a little bit nicer. Okay. That's helpful to get up-to-date numbers because yeah, things are everything's more expensive these days. That so makes sense. I had come across this was a side hustle show listener and he sent me his model where it was single family homes, but it was like targeting huge houses, like you know, seven, eight bedroom house and almost like dormitory style or almost like frat houses. But his arbitrage play was parsing out bedrooms for travel nurses, for construction workers, for these kind of long-term stays, but somebody who still wanted a house type of environment. And it was like, well, there's a million ways to get it done. And we just re-released our house hacking episode a, a month or two ago. And so that was another way. Like, even if you don't want to do this, like you could kind of use some ideas from this conversation with Richie to how do I offset some of my living expenses? Lots of different ways to get that done. Now, before we wrap up, I do want to address, because it's somewhat controversial and maybe more so in really, really tight housing markets where like you're taking long-term housing off the market and turning it into short-term, which in theory was when the supply goes down, the price goes up, you're raising rents for the people who need those units in the name of making a buck. Like, you know, you aren't capitalists, like, it sounds like, well, look, it was sitting vacant anyways, at least in your case early on, but would love to hear you speak to that. I would be ignorant just to say I have all the answers. And I believe that that topic itself is very complex. There's many more parties than just the demand side and the supply side. There's other factors about building, government involvement and all that. But to your point, you're right. Firstly, we're looking at apartment buildings that are more vacant than the market average for a whole bunch of reasons. Could be seasonality, could be the economy. That's our leverage. That's what we're looking at. I don't take a new unit unless I get rent concessions up front. In fact, a lot of the buildings that we started getting this year, in December of last year, I basically said, oh, that's it. That's the business model. It only works during calamity. That's why we're not able to scale last year because rents were so high. We were not getting rent concessions. Market was tight. Well, in December, one of the largest apartment companies in the country, if not the largest, a real estate investment trust came to me. We work with them and said to me, hey, take these two units and we're going to give you four weeks rent concessions, which I negotiated to eight. And all of a sudden I started seeing that the rents were dropping in certain markets and I was getting more inbounds. So for that reason, I looked, I'm like, wow, these guys have 22 bedroom apartments available. So whose fault is it? Was it theirs because their rents was too high or because the market had changed? So all I did is I took those. I didn't take them all. In fact, we rarely take all of their inventory. We're only taking about five or six per building. Just for a lot of reasons, I just think that's our number. To your point, sure, there is some of the inventory we're removing. We've never like taken over the entire floor. Plus, a lot of these properties we're converting to furnished rentals. There's a huge market, an underserved market for getting people to stay in furnished housing. We have a lot of our current guests are in flux in life and they stay at our, some of our properties, but it is a bit more complex. Yeah, I believe there has been an effect by having the increased people purchasing property, turning into short-term rental people, leasing properties and subleasing it. Sure, I believe that. But then there are other factors too. In my markets, there wasn't a ton of building that should have been going on. And housing is definitely needed here in Southern California, right? But there are a lot of fingers being pointed at us and even others. And some of them have a valid point. I just don't think we're the only reason why that issue occurs. Fair. Have you ever had 
or have you ever been operating in a market where the city or the municipality comes in and just just squashes short term? Like, nope. Yeah, it's got to be minimum thirty days. So they said they were going to do that in the city of San Diego for a very long period of time was flirting with the ideas of regulating it. It had always been allowed to do. You just had to pay your taxes, be a good host. But then after COVID, they said, okay, we're going to have this ordinance. The city council passed it. They were about to enact it, but then they tried to figure out what the lottery is going to look like and the logistics and who was going to get it because they knew everyone was going to run out. There were only going to be a fraction of licenses available. So everyone was going to get their license pulled. Well, uh, Expedia spent a million dollars helping the city figure this out. They postponed the enforcement of this another year. So December of last year, almost a year ago, December 1st, the window opened up to pull your license, a tier three license, which is the license that allows us to do this if you don't live on the property full time. And then lo and behold, that day they said, guess what? We're going to remove the lottery. This was the lottery that held up everything forever. Why? Because only a fraction of people applied for the license. And then a month later, still lottery. A month later, still lotteries. Guess what? Today you can go get a license. To this day, it's just one of those things that the city said they were going to do, they didn't do. Now, here's the other thing. Probably eventually there will be a cap. But that day is not here, right? It's been 10 months. Now, the license is very expensive too. Here's the other really interesting thing. How expensive is very expensive? It is. It, it is. It's a thousand dollars for a two-year license. Which, if as an arbitrager, you have to factor that four hundred dollars a month into your break-even. A thousand bucks for two years. A thousand for two years. Yeah, it's not. It's expensive. Well, that's forty bucks a month. Like it's not. A, well, I mean, oh yeah, forty. But it's well, compared to like you know buying a, a liquor license or something. Like it's not. Yeah. No. No. I agree. It's just where. We, where we were and where we are. One of the incredible positive unintended consequences of regulation is that some cities will compete against another city. Some cities say, well, we don't have a large tax base from hotels. The TOT tax, the transit occupancy tax may be low in one city because they don't have a ton of hotels. So now they're going to invite short-term rental operators in. And a few of them I know of raise their TOT tax rate really high. And in return, they have a lot of people flooded in those markets. So it's just one of those things. Government does one thing. Business works around it. This is always going to be a viable business model. There should be regulation. I agree to it. And if they cap it in some markets like they just did in New York City and Dallas and probably eventually here, you just have to work around it, move elsewhere, or just become a good operator so the city will always want to work with you. Yeah, I can imagine the... Expedias of the world, like the big hotel lobby. Like we'd rather have some of that money flow into us instead of to guys like you. It's just setting yourself up in such a way that you're able to weather those eventual storms where it's like, okay, worst case scenario, I have an early out on this lease. If the math is no longer going to pencil, if I can't work within these constraints, I, at least I don't own the place. There's lots of different, you've mitigated your risk in some ways, but kind of be aware of some of those issues and stuff surrounding. There's a rule in real estate too. If you, once you're looking at an investment to put as a short-term rental, that you have to pencil it as a long-term rental, as a backup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to make sure that that cash flow is that way. I don't think it should be any different with short-term rentals in that you should have a backup plan on how you'll market your short-term rental in the event that you have to make it a mid-term rental, a furnished rental, that you have to be able to sublet it that way. And so if you can figure out that business, which I think is the new frontier, if you can figure out the mid-term rental business and that requires marketing and outreach and such, yeah. you can have the best of both worlds. Yeah. A friend of mine was transitioning all of her properties. I think she had six or seven single-family homes and she was transitioning from traditional 12-month lease setup, long-term tenants to corporate housing. Like, okay, yeah, I got to furnish it up front. But these guys, they stay sometimes six, nine, 12 months anyways. And they pay double the market rent because it's furnished and because the company's footing the bill. And like, huh, for not a lot of extra effort on your front. So it was, you know- a great guests too, right? Market, so they're, yeah. they're really good guests too, yeah. So I think that's a great business. I'm just scratching the surface on the midterm rental and the corporate a rental business. But I do believe you should be prepared for a city saying no to you and then to be able, you're a business person mm, to yeah. adjust just like in any environment, any regulatory environment, you need to adjust, especially if you're new to a business. This business is so young relative to most others. It's going to become more competitive. Some of the lowest hanging fruit, like I mentioned earlier about photos and all that stuff, that's going to be the minimum standard in a year from now. I think most hosts should be prepared for that, whether or not they farm it out to a property manager or just raise their own standard in how they host to stay more competitive. Yeah. For a while, wasn't Airbnb like, hey, look, your photos suck. We'll send a professional photographer out your way. Like, do they still do that? 
Yeah, so they did that once with us. Well, I don't know if they said they sucked. I think maybe that's why they did it. So they sent us an Airbnb deluxe photographer. His photos were fantastic. The bookings immediately, that's one of the quickest ROIs. You spend three, $400 for a photographer, you'll get your money back in a second because it's the best way to showcase your property. Well, we wind up hiring him and redoing photos in a lot of our listings, even though his price was double our photographer that we have, who she's great. She's still great. We work with her, but this guy was really good. So I think if you can find an Airbnb deluxe photographer, that's the best. He's $400 for a two bedroom, do it because he really, really showed us a lot. It would take him like a week to get our photos back to us. I'm like, come on, send him back. But he he was very methodical and careful. But yeah, it was uh, Airbnb. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. I remember reading about that. Like, dude, of course nobody's going to book this place. You look like you took these pictures in a dungeon. There's no light. It's all <laughs> rainy. Like, no, you got to sell it. This is the best way to do it. Well, Richie, where do you want to take this thing? You trying to get to a certain revenue milestone, a certain footprint in terms of the number of units? What's next? Not revenue. I focus everything on the quantity of our inventory. 80 is the next milestone looking to get there in the next six months. I ultimately would like to move into markets beyond California. We're looking at Texas and in Utah, some other places. That's for I stay. And I'm really out of the day to day. I don't do any of the hiring or pricing or anything. I'm involved in acquisitions because I love it. The deal flow for my acquisition is very similar to my other businesses. But what I'm trying to figure out is how to get our margins to be better. So there's a few tools that we're working on. We're working on a software right now, sort of a chatbot that our team will use to be able to answer questions quickly. We're currently using the hospitable chat, which is good, but we have to load it all up there. There's a couple cool tools on Bubble and a few no-code software platforms. And we're working on one right now to kind of help our team be able to communicate and answer questions quicker amongst ourselves. And if that works, I'd like to get that out to other hosts somehow. We're at the end stages of we're actually testing it right now, adding things to it. But no, I love this business. It's a great business. It's early. We're in the early innings of this entire type of business. I think there's so many different directions, whether it's services to this business or helping other hosts who have one property or two property and a W-2 and a life that they're not able to focus. If, for instance, COVID never happened, that would have been me. I would have had two properties, maybe three. I would have been too busy to scale or to focus on fine-tuning it. So for all those people, 80% of the businesses who are only on one or two platforms, if you can believe it, 70% of hosts are only on Verbo and Airbnb. If there's some services out there to let them operate like a hedge fund or an operator at scale to help them raise their game, then I think there's a huge business in that. So I'm looking at little things that we're testing internally, even though we're a tiny little company, there's a lot of things that we can test here that hopefully get out. So I'm doing a lot of that. I have a Facebook group. It's other people in the Airbnb space, not just arbitrage. We built it as a place to find housekeepers and to collaborate with other hosts. And it's not local, it's national. I'm spending a lot of time in the Facebook group now. And this is the Creative Airbnb Facebook group. Of course, we'll link that up in the show notes. So you can look for a Creative Airbnb Hack is the name of the group here. Currently, of course, Subject to Change has a kind of black and red and white logo on the front. So that's how you know you'll find the right group over there. You're using a relatively new model to still get that Airbnb short-term rental cash flow without all the other parts of it, right? Without purchasing a property and all the stuff that goes with it. So the barrier to entry is much lower, but I still believe once you're in, you really do need to operate at the highest level. And right now you can still do it. Right now you still can do all the things to be a really, really good host and compete with anybody if you take certain steps there. Yeah. And the way that I'm kind of thinking about this is like, okay, say my target, maybe you enter in with a target monthly profit of a thousand bucks a unit. I don't know. Is that realistic? $1,500 for a two bedroom net net per door per month, $1,250 for a one bedroom. The studios just don't hit a lot of target groups. Nurses don't like staying in them. And a lot of different groups just don't. So for that reason, it's usually younger people and they might be the kinds of people that are more susceptible to this recession. So we're just getting away from studios. But yeah, two bedrooms, $1,500 per month. A one bedroom is approximately $1,250 for us. That's the tried number that we've had month in and month out over the last three and a half years. Yeah, I know that's really helpful to hear because with that type of income, it doesn't take a lot of units before you're looking at, okay, this could replace the day job. So that's kind of inspiring to hear where test it out, simplify first and then diversify second. Make sure you like doing it. Make sure it works. Iron out the kinks. And then if you do find something that works, you got your foot in the door with certain property managers. Like, okay, let's make this happen. So I stay usa.com. You can check Richie out over there. 
And then that creative Airbnb Facebook group, which we'll link up for you. Lots of cool stuff in there for hosts and future hosts all around the country over there. Thanks for joining me. I want to wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. It does not have to be real estate or rental related, just whatever entrepreneurial wisdom that you'd like to impart. Just go for it. Obviously, do your research and go for it. But it, most entrepreneurs already have that sort of mindset anyway, that there are some things you just have to, at some point, make a decision. So you just try to figure out how you can mitigate your risk when you do make that decision so it's not a calamity. So there's certain things that you could do. In my case, it was one unit. I was willing to risk it to take one. If it didn't pay me back in a certain period of time, that would have been it. And then I moved on. I just say, if I can make a super simple, kind of a no-brainer, is just don't be a perfectionist. Just get it done. That's right. Perfection is the enemy of good enough in a lot of cases. A couple of takeaways before we wrap. Number one is this idea of you know minimizing your risk. And that comes in the form of doing your upfront research in terms of, well, what kind of price spread am I realistically looking at? It's that looking for a diversified travel sources like why are people coming to this town in the first place short term long term medium term you know looking at the language of that lease i liked your call about like look if i can't get any rent concessions or lease concessions up front i'm not touching it so i think you know trying to minimize that upfront risk in a lot of ways and then okay what's coming down the road in terms of different regulations and stuff like okay what's my worst case scenario like before you get in and then building the team and processes around this because there's a lot of moving parts to it. And ultimately, you don't want to be out there running across town and then somebody else is checking in over here and meeting them in person and handing off keys. Like There's a better, smarter way to be doing all this. So building up that team and process, and that's true for any business, but especially in this case. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. If you are a new listener to the Side Hustle Show, make sure to grab your personalized playlist at hustle.show. There are over 580-something episodes in the archives. If you're not sure where to start, this is a simple way to answer a few short multiple-choice questions and get that personalized playlist on the episodes that are going to be most impactful for you based on your answers to that quiz. So you can add that to your playlist on your device. Thousands of listeners have already claimed theirs and would invite you to become the next person to do so. Big thanks to Richie for sharing his insight. As always, you can hit up SideHustleNation.com slash deals for all the latest offers from our sponsors in one place. Thank you for supporting the advertisers that support the show. That is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.